The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Father, we are indeed thankful uh, that we can come open your word, that we don't have to try to sit around and stare at the stars or throw rocks out on the ground and attempts to try to divine what you want us to know. We can pick up your word and you didn't write a theological treatise. You have some of this are just historical records and they're letters written to people and to churches and it uh, seems like a very unusual way, way for you to provide truth to us, and yet it has been for now thousands of years immensely effective in communicating your truth. Whether we appreciate that truth or do anything with it, uh, it is still a very effective, and we're thankful for it. We're thankful that we can even have copies of your word, that we don't have to just sit here and just strictly listen to it. We actually can look at it in our own Bibles, and we're thankful for that because uh, you want us to be people that actually examine and test your truth. There is no entity on this earth that is infallible. There's no church infallible. There's no infallible people that uh, everything they say is always going to be true. The only thing that's true is your word. And uh, so, as always, I ask that you'd help me to be able to communicate uh, clearly what you have said. And if there are things I say that misrepresent your word in any way, I ask that those things would fall away, that those things would be lost and forgotten, but that those things that communicate your truth, that we might appreciate those. Uh, thankful for uh, this uh, guy in line that Stanton came across and the encouragement that that was to him. We just continue to pray for him as he continues to grow. And we think of Ben, the opportunity that you're giving him to be able to talk with this old classmate and uh, to be able to be a, uh, a testimony, uh, sharing the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, with this individual that uh, sounds very much like uh, she needs this. And again, thank you for the time ahead now. Amen. So last week, for just to make sure we're all on the same page, we started a new study in the book of Titus, um, where we're looking at, and if you have your Bibles open and you turn Titus, uh, by the way, we, we ended with this last week. We should have started with this, but uh, this is where Crete is. Crete's down here. For those of you that can't see, there's Crete, that little island. This is this is Greece. We know it's modern-day Turkey, and there's Crete uh, to kind of put things in order <clears throat> uh, in terms of where Paul is. And we're kind of the title, I'm, I'm leaving this. The title, if you'd look with me in Titus chapter 1, in verse 5, Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains. Or uh, that word that's translated remains has two Two ways that it can be used. If it is used, uh, it depends on whether it's used transitively or intransitively, which you may not remember those words from grammar school. But intransitively, it just means uh, that something is left undone. Transitively, it's I leave you. I leave you behind or I left this behind would be the idea. But intransitively, uh, there's nothing on the other end of it. It's just saying it's something that wasn't finished, something incomplete. And so this is what Paul is saying here when we have this, uh, that I left you in Crete, that you might set in order the things that are undone, unfinished, un not complete there on, on the island of Crete. So this is what Titus is supposed to do. And that's what this letter is going to be about. He's going to be addressing a number of things. And uh, uh, just to kind of give you a uh, a picture ahead. One, first thing we're going to look at today is he's going to address matters with regard to elders. And then we're going to look at next week, he's going to address matters with regard to how do you handle false teachers. And then after that, he's going to look at how do you encourage these different groups in the church? Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. He's going to deal with all of those. And then he's going to talk about thinking about grace. How does grace operate? And how does that then affect the way you relate to government? And how you relate to your salvation? And how you relate to each other in terms of service? So these are the things that, that uh, Paul's going to cover here in the letter to Titus. And last week we saw Paul introduced himself, showed that he was a slave, that he had a commission, things. And we talked, a talked quite a bit about that last night, or last week, excuse me. 
in the first four verses. I do want to go back to verse 4 just to remind us, because I think this is a really important idea. It says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. I keep looking down here at Clinton, and so I'm going to use him as an example in this. And I don't know that Clinton's thinking this at all. But I remember kind of being in his place, and you're sitting there, and you kind of watch these other people. And do you ever go through a part in your Christian life where you're thinking, man, I wish I had their faith. I'm never going to be like that. I have some pastor friends that, uh, boy, when I was a long time ago, before, when I was in seminary, before I was in seminary, when I was first pastoring here, then I'm like, oh, I don't know how you do all this stuff. <laughs> this is crazy. And I talked to these pastors, and the pastor's like, hey, you just, you know what? You just got to do what God lets you do. And you just, you know, don't, don't stress over it. Just, it's, it is stressful, but you need to just let go of that stuff. Don't, don't go. We're going to do a little bit of that this afternoon. If you stick around in the afternoon, Josh is not feeling well, so we're going to do a, a short study on a little bit of, on that because I got to share that with somebody the other night. Um, a pastor friend that's going through something, we'll save that for them. But I used to listen to those guys and go, I am never going to be there. I am never going to be there. And in reality, what Paul tells Titus is, you know what, we have a common faith. I don't have, I don't have greater and better faith than you do, and you don't have greater or better faith than I do. We all share a common faith, a common faith in God, a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a common faith in God's promises. And I think that that's really important because sometimes as Christians, we can look maybe at leadership in a church and go, man, oh, it's my life. It's crazy. I'll never be like, and you're like, yeah, well, if you saw my, per if you, if you sat in my house during the week, like a little, you know, bug on the shelf that I didn't notice, um, my wife might see over there and she might grab the fly swatter and chase you, but I probably would miss it. And you're watching us, you'd go, okay, well, Tim doesn't always have his act together. But you, I think you all know that. But uh, you'd probably think that. You'd be able to see that. And you'd be able to see that I go through struggles, that I have doubts, that I have times where I'm like, I don't know how this is supposed to play out. I don't know what to do here. Um, I think everybody does that. But I think it's very important for us to, to realize that as God takes us out, whatever he does, as, as Clinton graduates and he goes out into the world and does whatever he has, that he goes out as a believer in Christ, that he has the same common faith that the rest of us have. And he has that faith that he can rely on God to take him through the different challenges. And that's true for all of us. Whether you're down to, what's the youngest one we have in here is Brooklyn, right? Okay, from, you know, from down that age all the way up to the oldest of us. As believers in Christ, we share this common faith. So that brings us into verse 5 today. And it says, for this reason I left you in Crete that you might set in order the things that are not finished. And, and this is I think probably one of those things clearly that he's going to address first, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, first thing I want to address, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, we're just going to talk about this briefly. Titus isn't an apostle. He's not an heir to the apostles. Titus is this person that Paul has sent on this commission to carry out some of these activities. Paul was an apostle, but we don't have what we call apostolic succession. There are people that believe in apostolic succession. The Mormon church teaches apostolic succession. There are certain charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches that teach some version of apostolic succession. The Catholic church teaches apostolic succession. The Bible nowhere teaches apostolic succession. It teaches that the apostles were there for a window of time to get the church founded. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says. They were there to lay the foundation for the church. Once the church is let, that foundation is laid, then it becomes our responsibility, according to the apostle Paul, for us to build on that foundation of those apostles. And we don't blow the building off. We don't come in here and knock all these walls out, have Gordon come in with his with his excavator and tear those foundations out and redo them. You don't keep relaying the foundation. Once the foundation's down, it's down. That's why we don't have an apostolic succession. There's no reason for it. Now, the reason I say that is because it says to appoint elders. How do we get elders in churches? And by the way, when we're talking about elders, we're talking about what kind of people? What? 
Peg says believers. Okay, there's one. They have to be a believer. Anybody else want to add something? Mature. They're mature believers. Anybody else want to add another designation for these people? Pastors or shepherds. Okay. There's one other word that's used in Scripture for this guy. What? Bishop. 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 Which we don't we we don't use that word a lot. You know, um, when Anna Dalke used to go to church here, she used to call me Bishop Bishop Holsher. She used to do that because she thought that was really funny. Uh, and you could refer to me as a bishop, but it doesn't mean anything to us because we don't know what, because the word bishop is a butchered English pronunciation of the Greek word episkopos. It meant an overseer, somebody that oversees a church. And what happened was when they first had overseers, guess what they oversaw? A church. But you'd only have to move just a couple generations past the time that the church is getting started, what do you have? Well, you got guys, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm too important to just be over a church, so I'm going to be over three churches. I'm going to tell the elders in this church what to do in that church and that church, and pretty soon you have bishops over an area. And that ended up turning into something. And we have that in many forms in a lot of different churches to this day. And it's not biblical. The elders, the bishops, the, they're all referring to these same men. They're overseeing local churches. That's what they're doing. And since we don't have them, who now is responsible for appointing elders in churches? Do we have a hierarchy? Do we go to a hierarchy and say, appoint us a bishop, appoint us a pastor? What? The congregation is. It's you people need to know biblically what, the, what this man's supposed to be or men are supposed to be. A lot of these churches had more than one. We've got at least at least two or three, in, or at least three or four in this church uh, that I recognize, that I see them. And so if, if you look at this and you understand this, it's you now do this because we don't have a governing body overhead that tells us who's supposed to be here. There are a lot of churches that still have governing bodies that appoint elders in churches. And those churches are sometimes like, we don't like this guy. We don't like this guy. How in the world did this guy ever get out of seminary? This guy, as my dad would put it, my dad used to use this expression, that guy can't preach himself out of a hole. Uh, that's, my dad would say that. Not, he didn't say it about his pastor, but he has, they've had some guys that have come around that he said that about. In other words, they can't really teach the word well. And we're going to come back to that before we're done today. Um, so it, we're the ones that do this. We don't have a Titus around anymore. We don't have any apostles around to appoint elders. It's now our responsibility to evaluate people. And I think what we're going to see next is he's going to give us some qualifications these men have to have. And the reason you need to know those qualifications is because you need to be able to evaluate people. But this is going to say one other thing, and you guys have heard me chew on this before because it's a little beef I have with the way things work. But you know what? When we look for pastors, it's just like when you guys chose me. You had a couple guys that they talked to somebody. They had they knew they had, Carol knew somebody, and they were talking, and they got to Carol, and hey, here's this guy, and so they get a hold of the guy, one of the guys I had from seminary, and that guy calls me and says, hey, there's a church in Washington, and I'm thinking, oh, I could be in the pine trees, great, and he says, would you like to, would it be okay if we give him your name, and I'm like, oh, sure, and so then they call me, and so then I get a phone call from Dan or Leroy, I don't remember what it was, and they're saying, hey, we're a church out in central Washington. I'm going, oh, in the pine trees. Okay, I don't. This, I keep having this picture in my head. I had no idea what eastern Washington looked like. I'd never been out of the I-5 corridor. Anyway, and so we're talking on the phone, and they say, can we, could, could you send us a resume? Okay, I'll send you a resume. And they look at the resume, and they go, hey, could we send you a questionnaire? So they send me 10 pages of questions. It took me like a few days to answer all those questions. Pagan, one of our daughters went off and did something while well, I sat and answered all this. And you know why you had to do all that and all that interviewing and stuff? Because you guys didn't know me. You had no idea who I was. In fact, even after going through all of that, I could have showed up and I could have been a complete disaster. Please don't comment on that because I, sometimes I might have been a little bit of a disaster at that point, but uh, maybe still am. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> what? <laughs> Well, I just, and I always have to say this, I look back and I'm just thinking of how kind and gracious you people have been with me over the years because I think of the things that I've gone through over, over the years and the fact that you guys have been helpful and 
pointing me that, hey, you're kind of off the path here and what you, you know, I'm just thankful for that. Anyway, back to the main point. And I, I always think about that this time of the year. You guys probably don't keep track of these anniversaries, but they roll in my mind because because we have an anniversary in just a couple days. It's going to be the after this is the day, the first time, first day that we came to Royal City as as officially as a pastor um, on June second. So it's all really fresh in my mind when I think about all this. Uh, it's been thirty one years, but you know what? It still seems like it was just yesterday. Sometimes I don't know if you guys feel like that. Sometimes, hopefully, you're not thinking it's been an eternity. Anyway, but you need to know what these qualifications are. Because you need to be able to evaluate a person. And the way it was designed was that you looked out in your congregation and you said, do we have somebody here that demonstrates that they're gifted as a shepherd teacher? And do they show maturity, that's the elder, and or do they meet these qualifications? That's why they're there. To the best of your ability, you have to do that by contacting seminaries. Hopefully we're, you know, I, Kevin Jeffries and I had a long conversation about this uh, when uh, they were here for our Bible conference. Anyway, I'm meandering. Let's get on to our other main points. What are these qualifications? Qualification number one, and I don't think most of these are going to be too hard for us to understand. But the first one, if any man is above reproach. Now, that's not a blanket statement. He's going to use this kind of idea several times, but that is above reproach, and then we would put a colon behind that, and there's two ways that he needs to be above reproach. Number one, the husband of one wife, or in Greek, a one-woman man, which a one-woman man is easy to define. Number one, he doesn't run around and cheat on his wife, I would say that's the first thing. And number two, I would even suggest he's not a flirt. Okay? He's not a flirt. There are pastors that have never to my knowledge, ever cheated on their wives, but they are very, you're, it, to me, uncomfortably flirtatious with women that are not their wives. And I'm always like, and I'm, ladies, thank you for being so kind with me because I'm trying really hard to be more brotherly and less keeping you at arm's length. That has been a hard thing for me over the years. Just because I look at this and I try to take this pretty seriously and I'm terrified, knowing my human nature, I'm just terrified of stepping across any line in any way. And it's not because I don't want to be disqualified as a pastor. It's because I know that's not what God wants and I don't want to hurt my wife. So anyway, having said all of that, first of all, he's a one-woman man. That's the first way he needs to be qualified as. doesn't mean that he's only been married one time. I honestly think, uh, I honestly think a man might actually go through a divorce, and at a point in time in the future, might actually be in a position where he could serve as a pastor again, perhaps being married to somebody else. But I think, but I'm just saying, I still think that's something you have to be very cautious with as you proceed there and those kind of things. So just trying to explain uh, some things that a lot of people don't understand. I mean, there are people that have taken this to the point that, you know, you can only be married to one woman. She dies. That's it. You cannot remarry. That's it. Because you have to be a husband of only one wife. And that's the way they understand this. I don't know if you guys know that, but there are people that teach that. They teach it rather forcefully when it comes to that. Second thing that he has to be above reproach with is that he have children. I love the New American Standard here because they blow it. <laughs> children who believe. You know the problem with that translation is? You have absolutely no control whatsoever whether your children believe. I have a commentary by a guy. I really like the way he handles the scriptures a lot of times. He does a great job of sussing out the Greek and things like this. But you know what? When he comes to this, his comment on this is, if you can't get your children to believe, you probably aren't going to be able to get anybody else saved. And that puts salvation like it's in your hands. You know? And that it's not yours. I can't strong arm anybody into believing. I might strong arm you into saying a prayer, which people say that that's salvation. I might be able to strong arm you into doing something, you know, that we might call salvation, but it's not salvation because I can't make you believe. And therefore, he's not saying children who believe. I would understand in this context here that he's talking about children who are faithful. That is, they're dependable. 
not accused, and this is the two things. He gives the dependability in two areas. Not accused of dissipation. I hope my kids never dissipated. We'll come back to that in a second. Or rebellion. First of all, that word dissipation. It's the same word that we have over in Ephesians 5.18 where it says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. <laughs> it's a word meaning, this is the way, the, it means not saving. But this is the way the Greeks used it. It was reckless. That's, that's literally the way the Greeks understood this word. It was reckless. It was reckless thinking or it was reckless behavior. That was not safe. And I used this illustration at a Bible study recently, and I don't want to tell it. My wife tells me I, my stories get a little bit too involved. But I was riding with my cousin on his dirt bike, and we went out the back of the farm and headed up the hill into the timber. And we come down, he goes, now we're on the road. He goes, now this is going to be fun. We're going to go down through the trees. And I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I am getting off the bike. So I got off the bike. I stood there. My cousin takes off on his dirt bike, and he's bouncing all over the place. I would have been off the back of the bike just unwillingly if the way he was bouncing down the hill. But he gets to the bottom, and there is a wash rut at the edge of the road that perfectly fit the bike's wheel. And the bike's wheel dropped into that, and my cousin just went launched right off the front of the bike, sprawling out across. And I'm just thinking... That would have been me too. I would have been on I would have been landing on him or hit one of those trees. My cousin was reckless. That was his nature. I ran around and did stuff with him, and there were a lot of times that I was like, he's just a little reckless. I've used that, maybe you've done that kind of thing, and you thought, well, that was fine. But I'm gonna say that's reckless. That's Tim. Uh, you know me, I'm a little on the cautious side, but accused of. In other words, he says, you don't want kids that are accused of being reckless. You don't want the people looking and go, man, those kids are crazy. It's like those kids put their heads down and they just run into stuff. Poof. You know? I'm talking metaphorically, but sometimes that's literally. You want kids that are doing things that are would be considered sensible. Okay? That doesn't mean your kids all are proper and everything like that. We understand that. There are people that we still have fun, but there's. I think we all understand the difference between recklessness and the extreme of just sitting around on your hands all day. That's not what he's talking about. Second thing that he goes with them is he is also that those children are not accused of rebellion. And just and I'm trying to make sure you all understand. Not accused of, of dissipation or rebellion. Those are describing the children. And the reason that we can say that is, is because they're in the neuter voice and they're referring to child, which is in the neuter. Okay. And so he says that word rebellion means that they are, excuse me, that they are unsubmissive in, in this regard so that they will stand there and they will not submit to their father. Dad says, you know what? You need to sit down. No, you need to go clean the kitchen. I don't mind. <laughs> Shouldn't be like that. You can raise your kids that even if your kids are not believers in Jesus Christ, they can know that there's something that they need to do and that they obey. You can teach them that there's a way to live, that they can have fun, but they don't need to be stupid about it. That would be reckless like that. And he says that this is just what they need to do. Paul talks about this also in 1 Timothy. Just flip over there for a moment to chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this is the way he talks about it over here. In verse 4, 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, having his own household well organized. Does that mean, anybody ever seen uh, um, Sound of Music with Captain Von Trapp? Comes up there, he's got his whistle. You guys ever watch that? And the kids all come running downstairs and they all get in line from, from oldest to youngest and they all stand there and they go, and they're like, what's your name? Liesel, Friedrich, you know, is that, is that what he's talking about when he says order? No, he's not talking about that. It's just order that you need chaos, that every time, it's, every time you have to leave the house, it's like a nightmare. It's like, I just want to go to town by myself because I don't want to take the kids because it's a nightmare just trying to get everybody in the car. It's like, not that, that there is some order in the way you do things. In the way things operate. What? Or you enter the house, yeah, it's like married. It doesn't mean you walk in the house and there's not toys around and stuff like that, but it's just this constant chaos, okay? Uh, 
Stan and I've talked about this, and Dwight. As the kids in our church have gotten older, it's a lot easier to visit while you're eating lunch. And I love little kids. If we had more little kids, I'd be okay with that. But I'm just telling you, sometimes you get a lot of little kids down in the basement. The noise level is at such that when your ears don't work that great, it's just like now all of a sudden, my brain can't filter through the sound and I can't hear the person across the table from me. That's me. I, I mean, I literally have had that problem where someone's talking and I'm hearing 40% of what they say. Because the din from all the, the clatter and everything, and it's not always the kids. Sometimes it's us adults, and I know I can be loud too. Uh, but uh, So it says managing or organizing his household well, having his children, it's having his children in submission with gravity. So they're in submission to father, but that su submission is that word dignity. It's, it's that he rises above. He's not drawn into their stuff. That when, when there's a, something going on with the kids and the way they handle it, dad doesn't handle it the way the kids do. Dad stays above that. And the kids respect him in that regard. And so this is what he's talking about. And I have a couple of, uh, I do want to look at another, another statement here that I think is always important when we talk about raising kids. And turn with me over to Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 21. Tells us in verse 20, and I always think this is really interesting, because as a kid, I get, how many of you growing up in churches, you had this verse thrown in your face a lot? Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. You're supposed to obey your parents. However, I very seldom ever remember hearing in church Verse 21 taught, which says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they do not lose heart. You can be such a domineering, domineering, forceful father that your children walk out. They, Clinton graduates and he walks out into life like, I probably can't do anything and I just better be good and be careful. You know, And you don't want kids to do that, do you? You want kids to go out with some spirit that, hey, you know, see what happens out here in life, you know? And he actually says, but the, it's very important that he says, do not exasperate. And that word exasperate is actually a word in the Greek, which means to push them, uh, to push them to, uh, um, trying to get the word here, to be, uh, help me, help me, I'm drawing a blank on this. It's erethizo, it's to cause to be contentious. In other words, you can set these kids up that they're just always like, <sighs> and there are kids sometimes that it's like, I can't wait to bust out of the house because I can't live with my dad anymore because dad is absolutely impossible. There's no way to please him. You don't want to be that either. See, you see how there's a balance of managing your kids and having them in order <laughs> and being that person that is so impossible that the kids can't wait to get out from underneath your heel or your thumb. And so having said these things, I just always think it's important to do this because it's so easy when we go to back to Titus chapter 1 where it talks about the fact that this man needs to be a one-woman man and he needs to have these children that are dependable because they're not reckless and they are not unsubmissive that we take that unsubmissive and we think, well, how do you get unsubmissiveness? You crush them. You get them under your hand. You make their life so hard. And you don't, I think, I don't think any of us here think that. I hope not. But this is what he's getting at. We don't do that. That doesn't fit these other scriptures. And if Paul has to tell the Colossians that this is true for the fathers, is that true for the pastor teachers? Yeah, it's true for them. Because they're supposed to be setting the example. People ought to go, oh, how do you, how do you raise your kids? Oh, I kind of, we have to do it exactly like this, hon. We all make them, no, it's not like that. It's just that you see, oh, the guy, the guy can be gentle with his kids. There's an appropriate time to be funny with the kids. Oh, sometimes there's a time to say, no, okay, knock it off. We got to get this done. There's, there, it's appropriate, right? There's different things appropriate to different situations. Okay. I hope you all got that because we kind of ran through that maybe a little fast. Maybe you thought we sat on it too long. But now that brings us then to verse, verse 7 then. And verse 7 says, For the overseer must be 
above reproach. And this word above reproach means that somebody cannot make an accusation as God's steward. Steward, fancy word for a manager. He's managing your business. Ben, if you were looking for a new manager down there, would you want a guy that somehow or another you found on his, res on his resume that he got fired from the last three jobs because he sat around on the job most of his shift and nothing ever got taken care of. The rest of the employees were like, well, we don't know what to do because he's not there. And well, we just kind of tried to find stuff. You would not You would go, well, this guy isn't going to be a good manager. I need somebody that I know that can actually take the lead and keep people moving and, right? And so he says he needs to be somebody as God's manager that is, first of all, that first word there in the King James, or in the Numerical Standard, not self-willed. Now, some of our Bibles there, uh, to put it this way, he doesn't do whatever he wants. If you hire a manager, is he there to do what he wants? No, he's there to do what the people that hired him as a manager told him they want done. This is the way we want it done. These are the things that you need to make sure that the people under your management are taken care of. And so he's not doing whatever he wants. And it's a problem in lots of churches that you have pastors that they push till they get what they want. The whole thing about the name, I'm being trying, I'm trying to be careful. This is something that I'm interested in, but you know what? I also want to be good that, you know, if I get people that are like, no, no, we shouldn't do this, I'm like, okay. I'm not gonna get you down and wrestle you on the floor. Okay. Um, and so he says he doesn't do what he wants. Second of all, he's not quick tempered, because you know what happens? A lot of times, if you're pursuing what you want, you got a short temper. You blow up. It's really easy to blow up at people. You don't want somebody like that. You want a people that's able to rein in their temper. Rein in their temper so that they actually are going to be a good example of getting something done a proper way rather than just yelling at people. And by the way, and most parents know that, parents that yell at their kids a lot, it works for a little while. And pretty soon, the kids don't listen to it anymore because it goes in one ear and out the other. And they're like, yeah, to, to quote a, a comedian of years past, he says, mom can't whip both of us at the same time. <laughs> so they weren't really afraid of mom. But he says, but if dad ever said, <laughs> you know. So anyway, not, not quick-tempered. Second of all, or third, not addicted to wine. No, no, simply not a drunk. The word in the Greek literally means one that sits alongside wine. Who sits alongside? Who sits alongside wine? A drunk, because they don't know how to function. So when you think of them, they they've got the wine there. So it's just another way of talking about a person that's a drunk. You don't want a drunk, because is a drunk going to be able to manage things well? No. So he says it's amazing that he would even have to tell us that, but it's something that he seems like we need to know. The next one, oh here here's a really good one for you. Um, Asher, you're going to answer this for us. Not pugnacious. What does that mean? Never heard the word pugnacious. Does anybody know what a pugilist is? Does anybody know what a pugilist is? Oh, Leslie knows what a pugilist is. It's an old word for a boxer, and that's what pugnacious is. Did you know it? Oh, did you know it? Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Not pugnacious means not a violent fighter. I mean, the, literal, the word literally means he doesn't immediately put the fists up. He doesn't immediately put up the fists. I don't have problems with pastors that conceal carry and things like that, but I've talked with some pastors that they, they tell me they conceal carry, and they're watching the exits, they're keeping an eye on there, and somebody comes in, and they cause trouble, they're going to put them down. And there's part of me that's like, okay, that's not completely bad, but at the same time, is this the way you want to live your life? Because that seems like you're, you're ready, like I'm ready to go violent in a moment. And I don't know that that Paul's saying, that's not the way you solve things. And the problem is, a lot of people are like that with believers. And they're ready to go to blows. And, you know, thank goodness, we've never witnessed this here. But I've known churches where they actually, in meetings that they've had in the church, they've actually had deacons throwing fists or, th or punching other deacons in meetings because the one gets so upset he comes up off the table and comes across and 
And I don't know, I've never heard of pastors doing that. But I'm just trying to say, or Paul's trying to say here, not a violent fighter. You don't want a man that's that's violent, a man that immediately goes to blows out of violence. To This is not the way we as believers should respond to things. It doesn't line up with love one another. It doesn't. It, yeah, it doesn't. And again, you know, if you if you show up and you conceal carry here and you're watching the exits for the rest of our safety, I mean we can say we appreciate that. I'm just I just don't want anybody to take the wrong message away. I just think if you're constantly coming prepared, this is all I'm trying to say, like, oh I'm just kind of saying, you know, maybe you need to maybe you need to kind of calm down and trust God a little bit more uh, in things like that. And then the last one, not fond of sordid gain, or put it this way, they're not, they're not a person that's seeking money at any means possible. They're not seeking money at any means possible. Just because you can get money doing that doesn't mean you should get money doing that. And sometimes you can do things that might be questionable at times. That word sorted, in, in the Greek, it's, it's a word meaning shameful. So it's kind of a thing that, well, how'd you get that money? Well, I did this. Really? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? So he says, not doing that. In other words, there are people, and Peter tells us this. Peter tells us two things about these elders over in 1 Peter 5. Number one, that they're not put you don't put them in the ministry because they're under pressure. I gave you an example of that a couple weeks ago about a person that the mother so wanted her, her, her daughter to be a missionary that she just almost strong-armed her son into going to, a mis in, into, to, into missionary work. They got on the field. They lasted on the field for less than a year, and he spiraled into depression and anxiety, and they had to come home. So you don't let a person pressure you into it. But the other side of it is you don't go into the ministry going, this is a sweet gig. I've actually heard pastors, not any good pastors ever say this, but I have actually heard pastors saying, man, I only have to teach the Bible once a week and I buy my messages. Some of you probably know that, but you can actually buy books that have messages. And you can, you know, and if you got those messages and they were good, and I don't think they probably are, but if you could do that, okay. And I have time to golf like three times a week. <laughs> and they, this is the way they look at life. You'd have to say, that's not, what the, that's not what serving in this regard is. Okay, so he's not chasing after money. But on the contrary, what does he say? But he should be hospitable. So your wife better... No, it's you are hospitable. You encourage hospitality. You exercise hospitality. Now, is it helpful if your wife exercises and demonstrates some hospitality? Sure, sure it is. But in reality, it falls on the shoulders of this man that he's a person that, they go, I don't have time for you right now. I don't have time for you. <laughs> I can't fit you into my schedule. It's the type of person that, that says, hey, you're welcome. You're welcome. Come, I'll take time with you. We'll do something. And the word hospitable meant literally one that was fond of strangers. In the same way that you knock yourself out and take time for your family, you take time for people that, well, they're not part of your immediate family. Which I always think when you talk about believers, this is all our family, right? So he says hospitable. Then loving or fond of that which is good. He wants people to have a sense of well-being, and he is fond of what, it, of what it takes to give people a sense of well-being properly. Obviously, not by cheating the system or working the system, but by just doing the things that are proper. I, I think it's really interesting. You remember, what does Peter say over in 1 Peter chapter 4? You can be happy when you... Does anybody know what it says? Well, you what? When you suffer. So that you go, that doesn't work well. But you know what? Sometimes there's believers that need to know how they can go through hard stuff. As Jim's kind of going through this. Satan wants us to think, hey, you go through hard stuff, God must have dropped the ball on you. <laughs> and you need to be able to say, no, that is not the way God operates, but there is something that can come out of this. And so he says he needs to be one that is um, 
keep losing my place, one that is loving that which is good. Next of all, that word sensible that he uses in here, and that is a, that is form of that word that the kids are not reckless. This is one where he is sensible. He's thinking about what is safe, but he's talking about an attitude of that safety. Now, that attitude of safety, I would say, is twofold. Number one, yeah, it's really easy to say in terms of just kind of the way we live life in general, you know. Your pastor's not a guy that gets behind the wheel and tears down 26 on a Friday afternoon when WSU is all heading east or heading west for the weekend and he's doing 85 down 26. I think that's a little shameful. Probably reckless. But that's one example. But the other side of it is, I think he terms, thinks in terms of spiritual salvation. When situations come up, when you hear about somebody that goes through a loss, you think in terms of salvation. When you think of a person that has a hard decision, you think in terms of salvation. It's always it's easy for us to resort to, to solving problems and thinking about problems the way the world does. But, but this is a person that ought to say, hey, what does our salvation say about this? How does this salvation, how does God with our salvation want us to address this thing? And so he says, uh, hospitable, fond of that which is good, sensible, and then righteous, our word just there, he's righteous. You got to see righteous behavior. Yeah, again, you don't see a guy that's, I would say, cheating the system. This, different than, it's, not, it's just not all about gain. Some people just work the system. They, work, they try to work the system to their, to their advantage. And he doesn't do those kind of things. He doesn't, he's not looking to, he's righteous. And obviously he's righteous in terms of his salvation if he's a believer, but is he functioning righteously? Or do you see him as a character? Character is a, and when we say, well, that guy's a character, that's a, as Jim was saying about the, like the word bless, that's a, that's a, he's a character. We're saying is, his character is questionable. The way he handles things, the way he deals with people, not necessarily righteous. I want a person that demonstrates themselves to be righteous. And because I always come back to this idea, righteous for us as believers, not exclusively, but largely is going to involve the kind of love that you demonstrate for other people, that you're thinking about other people in terms of love and what's best for them. And then uh, the next word here that's translated devout is our word asias. And it's a word meaning he kindly fulfills his God-given role or kindly fulfills his God-given objectives. Can you do, can you fulfill the role that's given you and not be kind about it? Yeah, you can say, this is what God expects of me. I don't like it, but I'm going to do it because God wants me to. Or you can go about it and you can be kind. And that's what this word is. A lot of times this word is translated holy. It's not the word holy. It's not at all the word holy. In fact, this word, you know what this word translates a lot of times out of the Old Testament? It translates the Hebrew word. You're all going to know this Hebrew word because you've actually heard me say it many times. The Hebrew word kesed. Kesed. Which is the word that we translate lovingly kind or loving kindness. It had to do with being faithful, dependable. Some people try, have tried to say it's covenant dependability. That only gets one little facet of it. It had to do with being faithful and dependable with kindness about it. Maybe we'll have to do a word study on that sometime because I've, I've worked on that word quite a bit over the last year, um, the way that kesed was used. But also then, this word, asias, you kindly fulfill your God-given role. Well, if you're, if you're going to serve as a pastor, do you want to go, oh, man. I went to golf this week, but I got church stuff. Oh. <laughs> Have I ever been like that, Peggy? <laughs> Not necessarily with golf. Maybe fill in the blank with something. Yeah, Peggy will tell you. There have been some times that I'm like, oh, I've got a bunch of church stuff to do. Usually I'm not really mad I've got church stuff to do. If I'm mad I have church stuff to do, it's because I didn't get around to getting it done because, as my wife will tell you, I sometimes let other things get in the way. But... Uh, but this is asias. This is this word here. And then he says, and self-controlled. 
which to me is interesting as he comes back to this at the end, self-controlled, uh, uh, as he's talking about this, and I have to keep coming back. Yeah, he's not driven by his passions or his desires. It is so easy for us to just kind of have this flare of emotion, this something happens and we just immediately react. Rich Schaefer, well, no, I'm not going to use that example. I'm going to use an example from, from our friend Nancy. When she was a kid, she says they grew up, they didn't have a lot of money in their house. So treats were very rare, very rare. And she had a sister and a brother, so three kids. And their mom came home with the grocery store with a treat for the kids one day. Okay, all you kids think about this. This was, this was a treat in her day. Nancy's, Nancy's about seven years older than me, so not a lot older. Her mom came home with a single snicker bar. One snicker bar. She didn't make the kids draw straws for it. You know kids ever draw straws? My mom used to make my sister and I do draw straws for stuff all the time. Who has to do that or who gets to do that? But you know what she did? She took a knife. She put it out. The kids sat around, they sit around the table. They're all excited because they're going to get their little piece of snicker bar. And she takes the snicker bar and she cuts it with a knife, cuts it with a knife. And her brother immediately, as soon as that knife leaves the table, grabs the one that he clearly sees is larger than the other two, grabs it and stuffs it in his mouth. That's um, lacking self-control. <laughs> and you know what happened? Nancy said her sister picked it up and goes, Oh, they got worms in it. It did. It had the thing was just crawling with these little white wormy things in there. His brother threw up, and you know, see, sometimes being impulsive, <laughs> it, it, it may in the moment sound like a good thing, but there's a couple of takeaways from that story. One thing is maybe we ought to appreciate the fact we don't think we don't think a treat is a big deal unless that ice cream bowl is piled full of ice cream instead of hey, we got one little cup of ice cream. You know, we always think we need to, anyway, that's another whole other story. But self-control, there have been. I don't think Grocery Outlet existed back then, because this has probably happened back in the 60s, I'm sure. Okay. But. But there have been but there have been people in churches and pastors that rather impulsively respond to something. Jim says something. And everybody's like, oh, what? And then you stop and Jim goes, Well, if you would have just let me finish what I was saying, and you're like, no, you're kinda <laughs> sorry. Anyway, self-controlled. And then that brings us now to this last part here, this last part, where he says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accord with the teaching that he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine or refute those who contradict. And it's one of those verses, I don't know if you're ever like this, but sometimes you read that verse and I know what the verse says, but you read through it in English or read through it in Greek and you're kind of like, because <laughs> it's like this to this to this to this to this. It's actually very orderly when you think about what he says. In very simple terms, what he says is you need to, first of all, hold to the faithful word. Faithful word is the word that you can count on. You can depend upon it. It's not like you came up with something and you can't depend upon it. Case in point, I have no promise from God that if I keep the Sabbath, that God's going to materially bless me. I have no promise. And yet I've known people that have said, you got to keep the Sabbath. Of course, when they said Sabbath, they meant Sundays because they thought God had switched the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And I keep the Sabbath and my crops do better if I don't farm on, if I don't ever farm on Sunday. In fact, I remember this individual, one of these individuals that actually told me, oh, I was way behind. And so I decided on a Sunday, I didn't even skip church. Went out on a Sunday afternoon and cultivated some of the crop on a Sunday afternoon and all those rows that were cultivated on that Sunday afternoon performed poorly compared to the crops that he didn't touch on that Sunday afternoon. And he was like, just confirmed, should not have broke the Sabbath. 
baloney. I have no idea why that happened, but it had nothing to do with Sabbath. Because we do not have a promise from God that if we keep a Sabbath day, that we're going to earn some material blessing. We have a faithful word in which God tells me, you know what? Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I have a promise that God has ordered works for me, readied works for me to do in love for other believers. And when he brings them across those paths, if I set my mind to who I am in Christ, God can actually do those works through me in those lives of those people, which to me is still crazy. You guys may not, you guys may not think that about you. You may think I, that, doesn't, that isn't crazy to me. But every time I see God use me in somebody else's life in any way, especially like this, I stand there going, I still can't get over that you do that with me. Because I still know of myself how inept I am. So there's the first part of it. Second part of it is, he says, which is in accord with, or that word accordance, which is measured by the standard of teaching. We got two words for teaching in this word, but one is translated teaching, one is translated doctrine, and they mess you up. And that one is, he's talking about this teaching is that which is practical. It's, the, it's what we call New Testament truth. It's the truth that tells you who you are in Christ, how to relate to who you are in Christ, how to follow the Spirit's lead, or what the Spirit leads you to, which is essentially your position in Christ, and how you, how you actually can love one another properly. Not just love as somebody comes up with an idea of love, but how you can love them properly. And so Jesus, this is the, this is the practical doctrine. In, in essence, the practical doctrine is the truth you find in the letters written to the churches. So he says, the first thing is, you need a man, and this is a tough thing to tell people in churches these days when they're looking for pastors, but you need a man that knows the promises for you versus the promises that belong to somebody else. And then you need them to have those promises because they know what part of the word or what doctrine actually governs you. They need to know that. In other words, they need to know the difference between Old Testament doctrine, that's not completely accurate, but make it easy, versus New Testament truth. And then he says that if he's able to do, or he does that, then he's able to exhort by sound doctrine. That word sound is simply the word healthy. We get our, our English word hygiene from this word hugianas. And it's healthy doctrine, and this word doctrine is doctrine that does not govern your practice. But you accept it to be true. Did God create the, the heavens and the earth in the past? Mm -hmm. Did in six days, did God take that creation and reform it and put biological life on this planet? Did he do that? Yeah, that's true. It tells you right in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 what he did. Do we believe that God flooded the whole world with a flood because men wanted to do what they wanted to do, not God wanted to do? Yeah but he saved eight people and the animals in an ark that people laugh at, but it happened. We accept it to be true. We could go through all kinds of examples in scripture of these kind of things, but he says he's able to use healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine then is you use it properly rather than improperly. And he says you can do that. You can both Two things here, he says, you can, um, I'm just trying to, you can encourage by that healthy doctrine and reprove those who are contradicting. You're going to run into contradictors. And the reason he brings that up is because this is a lead into the next thing we're going to cover next week is how do you deal with false teachers? Because he's going to talk about false teachers and those false teachers, by the way, are misteaching the law. And we're going to see that when we get to the section next week. But having said that, Having said all this, essentially what you want is you want a person that clearly knows New Testament doctrine, one. And because he holds that New Testament doctrine, he knows how to handle the doctrine that's not for our conduct. He knows how to handle it properly. So that you could sit down in Peggy's Sunday school class, and Kylie, 
Has Peggy told you in the Sunday school class about how to bring an animal and offer it on, a, on an altar and burn up an animal to please God today? Has she taught you that? Has she taught you about animals being burned on altars? So, yeah. So she's taught what they really did, but she hasn't told them, you're supposed to do that. And the reason I'm saying that is because they're going through those Old Testament books. Today was the last day in Numbers, right? So they've been going through Leviticus and Numbers, and they've been actually showing what this kind of stuff looked like. And you know what? Honestly, most Christian have, Christians have never read those books, and they really have no idea what's back there. They only know, go sit down. They, they, only, they only know the Ten Commandments. This is what most people know. They do not know... They do not know all this other stuff. And it's a shock to them if they actually pick up the book of Leviticus. And most of them, I don't think, probably get more than a chapter or two into it because you're like, they have an offering like this, and you got to do it like this, and you got to cut it here, and you got to spoil the blood here, and then you got to sprinkle the blood over here, and then you got to take and burn this thing. And then, you know what I'm saying? If you've ever read those parts, you're kind of like, what is this? This doesn't look anything like the church. You know why it isn't? Because that's not for the church, that was for Israel in which God was trying to show to them, you want to see how hard it is? You think you can do everything I said? And by the way, because I had this conversation with somebody re recently, was the law really impossible to keep? I mean, was the law so absolutely unreasonable that a person couldn't do it? No, in fact, God says. He says, it's not too hard. It's not like going across the sea to get it. It's not like going up into the sky to get it. It's right here. You know what made it hard? You got an old, stinking sin nature. That's what made the law hard. It wasn't the law itself. It was the stinking sin nature. He says the law wasn't too hard. I mean, do any of you guys ever have laws at home for your kids when they're growing up? And the kids go, that's not fair. And you go, it's not unreasonable that I should expect you to put the dishes away when the dishwasher's done. That's not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable that you shouldn't lie to me. That's not unreasonable. You get the point? The law was not really unreasonable. But people don't teach it that way. So let me give you an example on this. Flip in your Bibles over to Revelation 14. You're going, I thought we'd go over to Leviticus or something. No, we're going to go to Revelation 14. Because I heard this one the other day. And I'm telling you, I just was like, What? Revelation chapter 14. We're in the midst of some judgments in Revelation 14. And by the way, this is didascalia. This is doctrine that's not for my conduct because I'm not practicing. I'm living in this and I'm not putting this into practice. But I listened to a man and I'd had several people tell me, oh, have you ever listened to this guy? Have you ever listened to this guy? Oh man, this guy's great. Oh, this guy's good. And I was like, okay, I haven't listened to him. So over the last three weeks to a month, I've listened to several of this, guy, this guy's messages. Here's one that you all really will appreciate. He went over John 1.17. I was telling this to Jim earlier today. He went over John, John 1.17, which says that the law was given through Moses, but, the, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Of course, he just reads that out of English, and he doesn't clarify anything in there. Everybody, by the way, everybody says this guy's a great expositor, but he doesn't ever exposit anything. He reads a verse, and then he just kind of goes and extrapolates on it. So he, he goes through this verse. And he goes, you know what? He says, people try to make the law and grace like they're, contra like, like they're like this, but they're not. Because God, because the law is completely God's grace to us. God with grace gave us the law. So they're not contradictory. And you know what? He gets done doing that in the whole audience in this rather large auditorium. are all like, <sighs> and I'm thinking, oh. They just bought into a lie. But this is what he did the other day. I was listening to several messages on Revelation because I was thinking, I think this guy's way off on his future things from comments. So I saw he had a series on Revelation, and I was listening to several of these. And look at me at verse 14. 
And I looked, and behold, there was a white cloud sitting on the cloud, was one with like a son of man, having a golden crown in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him, who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who had power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called to the loud voice to him, who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the cluster from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And this guy goes over and says that that ripe grapes, that's harvest time. That's John 4 where Jesus says the harvest of people coming to Christ. That's what he's referring to. It's not what he's referring to. They're two different contexts. Anyway, verse 19, And the angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters of the vine of the earth, threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Notice this is God's wrath. This is God's fury. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And this guy goes, where did Jesus suffer? Outside the city. Oh, because it tells us that in Hebrews 13. And the blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridle. That's about four feet for a distance of 200 miles. And this man goes, our God's not the kind of God that's going to slaughter people like this. This is not about them. This is his blood. This is Jesus dying on the cross outside the city. And that blood four feet deep and 200 miles long is to say there's enough blood to cover everybody. And people are like, I'm like, what? What? I went back and read through the chapter. It starts off with that his, it's his judgment against the people that worship the beast. And I'm like, what in the world? But you know what? What he did was he took doctrine that's not for us, didn't even really teach it accurately, and took it away. And he actually, you know what? He deprived believers of something that is valuable, even to church believers. And that is knowing that those people that have actually been not a thorn in our side, but have actually been opposed to and violent against God's people in the past, in the present, and even out there in the future, they are going to get their righteous repayment. And that has been a comfort. And he goes, how is that a comfort to people 2,000 years ago? They didn't live to see it. And I'm like, you know what? A lot of believers that went to their grave knowing God's still going to make this right. It's not they don't have to see it. So you know what you do? You go to the book of Revelation and you just teach it. And you just study it for what it says. And if you don't just isolate and take a couple verses out of context and then say that it means something completely different, but you actually work through Revelation. We've done that in our Bible studies, haven't we? We've worked from beginning to end in this book. And it takes time. And when you do that, in that context, you go, well, I can see what that means. I could probably ask you, what does that mean? And you would probably would say, well, that means this. And I would say, I think you're right. Because in the context, you show what it means. I'm just giving, using that as a really horrible negative example at the end that, you know what, this is why you need somebody that meets these other qualifications, personal qualifications, his personal life, but he also needs to be a person that clearly knows how we as New Testament believers are supposed to live, distinguishes that from how God has revealed other truth for other people, but is able to use that truth not to tell you how to live, but to teach you other things, to teach you about God. Are we going to go out and slay giants like Goliath or like David? No. But am I encouraged when I read that to say, hey, that's the same God that delivered Goliath into his hand? He's my God. And maybe there's no giants he's going to deliver into my hand, but that's still my God, isn't it? And the God that rescued Noah and didn't make him go through the flood, didn't make the righteous go through the flood with the unrighteous, that's my God. And that encourages me that I have a God that is concerned about his people, those that are righteous. And he doesn't just throw us all into a big mixer with the unsaved and just <laughs> hit frappe and it's all the same. He doesn't do that. Anyway, yeah, we've been through this before, but it doesn't hurt us to come back and be reminded 
We could probably, I seriously, I've, there's times I thought you could use this passage and you could actually do a whole series of examples of how you could use an Old Testament passage to do something right, but it's governed, first of all, by a New Testament passage that says, well, it can't be that, because the New Testament says this for us. And you create contrasts. And we've done, some, we've done series in contrast before. Qualifications. If you're going to set things, if Titus is going to set things right, he needs to appoint men. He needs to appoint men with qualifications, and he needs to appoint men not only with qualifications, but men and handle the word as part of those qualifications for your benefit. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for your word. Thankful we trust for those people you've used in our life, people that have met these qualifications, handled your word carefully and accurately. And we ask as we then maybe have to be in that position, that situation where we maybe have to look at qualifications to determine who can lead us biblically, and that we would take these things seriously, take them to heart. Thank you for this time together then, for your word. Amen.